Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. Bet on all your favorite sports by accessing a wide range of pregame and in-play betting across the NFL, NCAA football, NBA, NCAA basketball, MLB, NHL, and more. Download now on iOS and Android, available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21 or older. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. What is going on out there? Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Score's NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined, as always, of course, by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, Wolfond? It's been uh, four days since we last spoke via podcast. We went on a 90-minute podcasting diatribe, would you call it? An adventure, ago? yeah. yeah. Many twists and turns that yeah. I did not expect. Me neither. But, but uh, here we are. We made it. We're still friends, I think. And uh, we're ready to get to episode 220. Yeah, we, we got uh, a few things to get to today. I mean, I think that the kind of topic du jour that we sort of can't avoid hitting on, even though I made a solemn vow early in the season that we were just not going to revisit the Ben Simmons situation in any detail until there was legitimate traction on a deal or until a deal actually got consummated. But it's just become too big an elephant in the room. It can't be avoided any longer. So let's discuss this latest development, which is that... According to a Shams Charania and Sam Amick report in The Athletic, rival executives around the league seem to believe that Daryl Morey and the Sixers front office would rather wait until the summer to try and flip Simmons for James Harden in a sign and trade than to take one of the offers that's currently on the table for him ahead of the trade deadline. I mean... Lots to sort of unpack, lots to hit on here. I will note, actually, that it, or another superstar was also added in that report. So When was the James first Harden. superstar named? <laughs> well, let's get, let's get to that uh, shortly. But yeah, so uh, it has been reported, I guess, that it's not only Harden, but it does seem like, you know, the focus of the article and most of the recent rumblings around this issue seem to center on this hypothetical. And that includes uh, a report from Jake Fisher at Bleacher Report this morning, which suggests that Harden isn't loving living in Brooklyn, quote, compared to his days as a central Houston magnate, uh, which, you know, I didn't realize that that James Harden had built an oil empire during his decade in Houston, but there you go. Uh, And that article did also mention Harden's frustration with Kyrie Irving's part-time playing status, as well as the colder climate and higher taxes in New York. Although uh, it's unclear to me how a move to Philly would address the latter two concerns. But anyway, this what is are Pennsylvania's all... taxes like? Are they, they... I think they've got they they've got to be the same as New York's, right? Like there there are a few states where they don't there there is no state income tax, which right. I'm pretty sure Texas is and... like Texas, Florida. Florida yeah, I'm uh, saying. I would assume New York's taxes are a little higher than Pennsylvania's. Like he would still have the cold weather and state income tax, but perhaps a slightly discounted state income tax. And maybe if you're really counting your pennies and dollars. 
I mean, As James he seems to be like he seems yeah. to want to achieve magnate status. So yes. he'd be a Pennsylvania magnate. I don't know. The only but, place James Harden is in counting his pennies and dollars is the strip club. I mean, I'm sure he's still counting them. He's just true. Yeah. perhaps being a little bit more liberal with them than he might otherwise be. But that's how you get your jersey. Uh, look, this, <laughs> this is uh, this is all very interesting to me for. A number of reasons. The biggest one, which you already hit on, being that, uh, as has been established on this podcast, James Harden isn't even an all-star caliber player anymore. To so, Wolf, to Joe Wolf on. <laughs> so he did make our team. Yes, but I was not on board. It's, um, yeah, I'm just, look, I remember when the Sixers were, obviously pushing hard for Harden at last year's wasn't even, I guess it wasn't at the trade deadline. Um, um, right around really this early. time. Right. It was like a year ago last week, I think when that deal went down that he ended up going to Brooklyn. Yeah. Which at that time was actually like less than a month into the season. Right. Uh, because that season started in late December. But when there was all that reporting about the Sixers being very strongly in the running to get Harden and, I think the package that was put on the table was, was reported as being Simmons plus Thibel plus two first round picks. And it was actually like, it, it was even reported in that uh, Charania and Amick piece that Tillman Fertitta like went to Harden and asked him what his preferred destination was. And I don't know how much that actually factored into Fertitta's and the organization's decision-making there, but it would be interesting if they, brought that to him. He said he preferred Brooklyn and is now angling to get himself to Philly. Like that's just, I mean, whatever we can, we can well, circle back. We can circle well, back to and that. The thing but. is too, is he, you know, I, I don't know how much credible the reporting there's been that he's actually angling to get himself back to Philly as much as there is that he's starting to consider life post Brooklyn and mm-hmm. the Sixers just make a lot of sense for so many reasons. But like, I have yet to see anyone fully connected dots in saying, People know Harden wants to be in Philly. It just seems to be like, a, okay, this would make sense if he wants out, given the history with Maury, all that. Right. Yeah. It, it's very circumstantial, right? You can say, like, in terms of his continued relationship with Daryl Morey. I mean, that's one of the the tidbits that gets snuck into those stories. It's just that, like, they've maintained contact in a close relationship, which could mean any number of things. But look, I, wh- when that was all reported, I remember talking about this about how. You know, the, the fit between him and Embiid is kind of imperfect because for one thing at the offensive end, like Embiid has never actually been a particularly good role man and he doesn't have much vertical gravity, if any, unlike, you know, the type of pick and roll partners that Harden has thrived with in the past. And then Harden also doesn't really move without the ball, never takes spot up jumpers, which doesn't really jive with Embiid's post up proclivities. So there's a little bit of an imperfect fit there. And then on defense, Harden is used to just like switching every screen, which is not exactly the type of base defense that you want to play with Embiid, you know, and it's like, okay, if Harden goes to Philly, is he actually going to chase guys over screens? Are we going to see that? Uh, Because we haven't seen it for a number of years. So it was not exactly a glove in hand fit. But when we talked about this last season, the reality at that time was that the collective talent between those two guys was, so overwhelming that it basically rendered any fit concerns moot. And I just wonder, you know, this version of Harden, this this sub-all-star version of Harden, is that 
still the case. Because look, obviously, if the Sixers were to get him, they would be incredible. They're already a really good team, and they, considering that the guy they are talking about potentially trading for him has given them literally nothing this season, they would basically just be adding James Harden to this already very good team for nothing. So yes, they would be they would be excellent. They would be a strong championship contender, no doubt. But James I, Harden, who has had four 30-point triple-doubles since Christmas alone. Yeah. Four 30-point so, triple-doubles in a month, five 30 in 10 games for not an all-star anymore, James Harden. I'm not doubting that if they can pull this off, they're going to be really good. They're going to be a strong contender for at least a couple of years. But don't you think if we're thinking like in any way long term, it starts to feel a little bit precarious? No. Because what, whatever you want to say about Harden and how good he still is, and he is still very good, despite my protestations about his all-star status, he is trending in the wrong direction, right? Like his turnover rate, he's got a 20% turnover rate this season. It's the highest of his career. He's shooting 54% at the rim which is his lowest since his rookie season. And if you watch the Nets, like that jives with the eye test, right? Like I've mentioned this before, but it's not, it's not even so much about his first step, but like it's the finishing step that I feel like hasn't had the same explosiveness this season. Like he's not powering through guys at the rim. You notice that. And that, you know, coupled with the fact that he is going to be 33 by the time next season starts and in line for a gargantuan new contract, I just wonder, like, is this the basket that the Sixers want to put all their eggs? Yes, in? for the love of God, yes, it's James Harden, and I know what you're like. He's not okay. I get it. Like the next three years of James Harden will not be the three best years of James Harden's career. They're not going to be what the last three years have been. But I still believe that who he is as a player now, which I, not even just to call out your All Star stuff, I still believe is absolute superstar level. Maybe not as consistently as we're used to, but still that level of player is by far the best. The Sixers couldn't even possibly dream of in a Benson. Like, I'm still not even convinced they can get it done. But if they could, it, it is not even close that that is the best they could do. That is the thing that would up their ceiling the most. And the thing is, too, is that, like, again, yes, are there players that maybe they could acquire that, to your point, if you thought about it, like even three years from now, you'd be like, that guy would still hold his value in a different way than Harden. He could still be helping Embiid three years from now when Embiid will still be under contract in ways Harden might not be able to. Yes. But will any of those players be able to get the Sixers as close to true, true championship contention as Harden will be able to even in the next one, two, maybe three years? No chance in hell. And I think that's the way they have to play it. And I think you know, again, we talked about the whole Daryl Morey 5% thing. Like, I think that's the way Daryl Morey has to see it too. Like, if if you're looking at actually trying to get Joel Embiid enough help to win a championship, you can't, like, I, I, I struggle to think of any right. potential package or young player who's not as good as Harden. Like, that could get them as close as James Harden immediately gets them. So here's here's what I'm saying. And I don't disagree with anything you just said. But when I say all of their eggs, I'm not just talking about the the kind of one silver bullet that they have left, which is right. the Simmons trade chip. It's also effectively punting on legitimate title contention this season because Simmons has reportedly informed the team. He has no intention of returning to play for them if they don't move him before the deadline. So, I mean, who really knows? Like there's been so much posturing and 
it's hard to know what's a smoke screen and what's a bluff and what isn't. But like, I think there's a, you have to at least acknowledge that there's a pretty good chance that if they don't move them before the deadline, they're just getting nothing from that roster and salary spot for the rest of the year, which to me means like, I I think Embiid has obviously been good enough this season that they're still going to be a force to be reckoned with in any playoff series. But I wouldn't put them in like the inner circle of contenders for this season. Like, would you agree with that? I would 100% agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm on record, right? As saying, I think they're wasting, right? They're wasting just like an all-time Joel Embiid season if they don't get him help. So that's part of it to me too, right? Like if if they were sure that it was a done deal, like if they knew for a fact that they were going to be able to pull this off, then that would be one thing. But what I'm saying, I guess, is I don't know if Harden is good enough anymore, or at least doesn't project to be good enough over the next few years for the mere prospect of acquiring him to be enough to make this kind of a gamble. You know what I mean? I, like, That's a so, very could, valid concern. That's a very like what I'm saying, concern. like this is all assuming that Harden actually does yes. want to go to Philly. And I'm, and I, you know, I, I'm still not convinced of that. Like we, there's no reason to be convinced of that, even based on the reporting that's out there. I had a thought. And I realize it's pretty far-fetched, but I don't think it's impossible. I think there's a a greater than 0% chance that there's a way the Sixers could move Simmons this year in, again, not for a hardened level super, obviously, get some sort of package that does help them this year, like gives them enough of a boost where you're at least on the fringe of contention. Because as we've noted last week, and Daryl Morey himself has said, the level Joel Embiid is playing at right now You don't need another like top 10, top 20 player necessarily to get him into the title picture. So is it not possible the Sixers could make a move like that with Simmons involved this year? And then between what remains on the roster going into the summer, plus potentially things that they got, things, people and and other assets that they get in that potential Simmons trade this year, could they not then use some of that stuff to turn around and still complete a sign and trade with Harden. Because again, people have to remember, like when it's a sign and trade and it's at that point, you know, the incumbent team is just trying to get something for a guy they don't want to lose for nothing. And in the case of Brooklyn, given all that they gave up to acquire James Harden and complete the big three, I think they would take something over nothing. I get that Brooklyn's not going to exactly be eager to help Philly load up, but if it's like very obvious, that's where Harden wants to be. At some point, I do think they would play ball if there's like even an, an attractive enough offer on the table. And I think I just don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Philly can still put some sort of attractive package on the table in the offseason as part of a sign and trade, even if they were to trade Simmons now. Again, they would have to they would have to play their cards really well. They'd have to get a really good package for Simmons, but I do think it like there are some options there. You know, maybe you lower the, the asking price for Simmons now, but you actually get a really good package that does include maybe some younger players, maybe some picks, whatever the case may be. And then you can flip some of those with whatever's left. And then I do think that gives you a little bit of a, you, you can kind of play the middle ground where you boost your championship odds this season, even if it's incrementally, it's better than not boosting them at all. And then you get harder in the office. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe that's a little too pie in the sky, best of both worlds. But yeah, I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. So this is actually really interesting to me because I think if I was Brooklyn, Simmons is the guy that I would want. Like, I actually really yeah. like that for Brooklyn. And I yeah. like that for Simmons as well. You know, like for them to get a guy who is 
seven years younger than Harden, uh, who would be a massive boon to their defense and who would fit right into their pretty devastating transition attack. And, you know, he wouldn't need to worry about generating his own offense in the half court. Like that is a pretty nice fit for them. I, I think I would feel, I mean, I wouldn't feel great about it, I guess, because they did shell out all the assets they shelled out for James Harden. So that's the guy they expected to get presumably for more than a season and a half. But if he was dead set on leaving and they did have to execute a sign and trade, I feel like there aren't many guys that would fit there better than Ben Simmons would. And that, that's obviously assuming that moving forward, Kyrie Irving is a full-time player. And I think, I don't know how solid this is, but I think it was uh, Ramona Shelburne early in the season when Simmons like reported to the Sixers after like this long holdout. When he practiced with thing his about phone in how, his pocket? Sorry? When he practiced with his phone in his pocket? Is that... that no, I'm, I'm talking specifically about his vaccination status. Oh, sorry. Okay. Because she... I think it was on a podcast with Pablo Torre, like the ESPN Daily pro- podcast, where she mentioned um, there was like a certain amount of time he had to spend like a certain number of days in a row that he had to test negative before he was actually allowed to rejoin the team. And that was in line with like a, an unvaccinated player's protocols rather than a vaccinated one. So... I'm just saying, uh, I don't. It, maybe that would be an impediment if the Nets don't want right. to wind up with two well, part-time players on their hands. Well, I was going to say then he would just replace the Kyrie role because Kyrie might not be there next year anyway. <laughs> it's crazy how much stuff is in flux right now for the Nets. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, but it's, it's almost uh, like so, getting putting a few flaky guys together wasn't <laughs> the best idea in hindsight. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, it wasn't the worst idea. Either oh, no, because- it definitely was not the worst idea. I understood it. I would have t- tried to do it, too. Yeah, because if they had stayed healthy last year, I do feel like they probably would have won the championship. 100%. So th- it is what it is. They they are in the situation that they're in right now, and uh, it's going <laughs> to be a really... games together. Yeah. Anyway, so th- th- to your point, the reason that I'm sort of of two minds about this is that And we talked about this, I think, a couple episodes ago when we were sort of talking around the idea, like, because we were talking about Philly in general, and it's impossible to talk about this team without talking about, like, how the rest of their season is going to go and what they can or should or will do at the deadline. But it is still a fact that it really doesn't seem like there are that many, like, objectively good options for them, I don't think, at this trade deadline. There are no objectively bad options for them either because, as I was saying before, they're just like basically adding free talent because right. they're as it is, they're getting nothing from that roster spot. But I'm thinking about it and it's like, okay, so what really is the opportunity cost to waiting? Because if it's, you know, I think it seems like the Kings and the Hawks are the teams that are most firmly in the mix. So... <laughs> Is acquiring De'Aaron Fox or John Collins, like how much is that really boosting their championship equity? And if you weigh that against the idea of waiting, not just for Harden, but like potentially for Beal or Jalen Brown or Dame or somebody like that, I mean... But if if they don't see the right deal out there, I kind of don't think waiting is the worst idea in the world because given the trade market for Simmons at this point, 
with the players who are actually available and the trade partners that are actually showing interest in acquiring him. I don't know if, I don't know if there is a, a move out there that actually like puts but them in the, in, even, in the inner circle of championship contenders anyway. Even if it is a Fox or a Collins, right? I get what you're saying. It's not the, it's not the most perfect fit. It's, it's definitely doesn't put them in like no brainer contention status, but I do think it gets them closer. Mm-hmm. Like, Yes, the Nets would, I think, still prefer Simmons over either of those guys. But do you really think the Nets would like Scott? It's like again, if they're if they're thinking they might lose Harden anyway for nothing potentially if he goes somewhere with Capsies, do you think they would really scoff at a De'Aaron Fox or a John Collins in comparison to potentially losing Harden for nothing? Like that's kind of what I'm getting at. I realize that there's not a perfect deal to be made this year, you know, if 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 Harden is waiting in the wings next year, but. I do think that like one of those moves could still end up with like better team this year and Harden next year. Yeah, but that would be, you know, I don't know how much hard, like how much leverage is Harden going to have. Like I haven't actually looked at this because I didn't think we were going to be talking about it in this much specificity. But like, what teams are going to have max cap space this summer? Not and many. Be able to sign him. Like, is it? Is a, is a threat that he's going to walk and sign elsewhere really going to have any teeth when the teams that have cap space are like the Pistons? And I mean, I'm just throwing teams out there. Again, I haven't checked. I don't know who has cap space this coming summer, but like it's not going to be like some upper crust contender or some like desirable team that's going to have the space to absorb him. So I feel like there maybe isn't going to be a whole lot of weight behind whatever threat he makes to walk. And in, and in that case, it's like, okay, there are going to be a bunch of other teams who are probably going to want to sign and trade for him if he's hell-bent on leaving Brooklyn. Like, what if it is Boston being like, yeah, we'll, we'll sign and trade you Jalen Brown. Yeah. And then the Sixers are sitting there with, like, John Collins. Right. You know, it's like... Yeah. No, I, I do think that's a good point. I think this, um, between the, the caliber of player Harden is, the barren cap space destination list this coming summer and kind of the way the league is right now i actually do think this is uniquely positioned to become like uh a sign and trade bidding war which you don't you hardly ever see that because usually if it's a sign and trade it's because okay there's one team this guy's going to and that the other team you know the incumbent team is worried about losing him for nothing but i actually to your point think it's very possible this summer because of the way things are lining up against harden's leverage that that's what we might end up having we might have like four or five teams that could be in the mix for Harden that he's kind of like open to any of them contenders bigger markets whatever and and that end up in this like sign and trade bidding war and it almost becomes like more like a a, a trade deadline deal or like just a trade than than a usual free agent acquisition or regular sign and trade where you know maybe you throw in some picks and a trade exception or whatever just so the team doesn't get anything like the Nets could stand to actually get Obviously not the haul they gave up for him, but quite yeah. a haul nevertheless. Yeah. I mean, all of this is just to say, like, I, I don't, my inclination would be for them to try and get a deal done at this deadline. But I also don't think it's so crazy, so stubborn, so misguided of them to want to wait it out if the offers are underwhelming. And obviously our definition of underwhelming might and probably does differ from <laughs> Daryl Morey's definition because throughout this entire process, I think he has really overvalued Ben Simmons's trade value. But, you know, for me, like I, 
the latest reporting about the Kings is that they would potentially be willing to absorb Tobias Harris in a deal. And so if the Sixers could finagle it, so it's like they're getting, you know, Fox and Harrison Barnes and like a buddy healed, then yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that's a deal that I would probably pull the trigger on. You know what's like, funny I, about that, though? I, I I would pull the trigger on that probably, too. But then I almost wonder, is that too much turnover? If we're talking about, like, maximizing this year, is that almost too much, tur- like, midseason turnover to truly expect that t- that new team to gel in time to win a title? Yeah, probably. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think there's a move out there where they make yeah. it and it's like, oh, the Sixers are the title favorites now. Like, they did Not it. favorites, not favorites, but in the picture, maybe? No, yeah. I don't know, man. It's... No, I think a deal like that would put them in the picture. Yeah. Like, Embiid might be... I don't think he's the best player in the league right now just because... He's one of the three best. He's one of the three best players in the NBA right now. Yeah. So, nothing should be off the table. Like, incremental improvements... Yes, I agree. ...can go a long way for this I team. I agree. But um, I do also think it's fair of them to want to keep an eye on the bigger picture and say... We're thinking about the championship window that we have for as long as Joel Embiid is in his prime. And this one silver bullet that we do have in the Ben Simmons trade chip needs to go further than just getting us. I mean, honestly, if you told me last year they could have gotten De'Aaron Fox in a straight up swap with Simmons, I would have been like, yeah, you take that and run. Um, Because Fox was incredible last year. But he he, he just hasn't been the same guy this season, man. Not, Not just in terms of like his jump shot falling apart, which has been a big issue, but... I just don't like he's not getting to the rim with the same frequency. His defense has been somehow even more apathetic than it was for the last couple of years, which has been super disappointing. So uh, whereas once I might've seen that guy as like something close to the ideal for Philly to acquire. Now it's like, especially coupled with the rise of Maxi, where maybe that creates almost a bit of a redundancy. I, I just Fox isn't looking as appealing to me as a, a Sixers trade acquisition as he was a, a few months ago. Yeah. The, the last thing I'll say on it is because, you know, one of the points in the Fisher report, and I've seen a couple other people talk about it too, is that like, you know, this would actually be James Harden's first crack at free agency and his like 13 year credits. Yes, that is technically true. Also, he more or less picked Brooklyn. Like, okay, he hasn't truly tested the full free agent waters, but he had his pick of where to go. It's not like this is a guy that, you know, has has had no uh, input or control over where his career takes him. So I think it's a little different than the average, like, well, this guy's never tested free agency before. Right. I mean, he's never done the thing where, like, he takes meetings with teams and they give right. him these presentations and try to woo him, which I feel like, you know, a lot of players talk about how much they enjoy that process. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think you're right to point out that he has gotten to control his situation in a lot of different ways. So yeah, uh, I don't know ask, how much or if at all that will factor into his decision making. Just ask Chris Paul about that, how much James Harden controls the situation. <laughs> all right. I feel like that is sufficient. Let's leave that there. And I really mean it this time. We're not going to talk about this again until a deal gets consummated. Okay, that's... We got close to half an hour of Ben Simmons trade talk, and that's about all I can stomach until the deadline. So let's take a break and we'll come back. And rather than talking about the speculative things that might happen, uh, we'll talk about some things that are happening or have happened, and we'll sift through that. 
What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash. Some unfortunate news in Chicago, where one of the best stories of this season, the Bulls being a top-flight Eastern Conference team looking like a fringe contender, playing surprisingly stout defense. It's, uh, I'm not going to say it's falling apart, but uh, it's wobbling right now. And, uh, you know, the the biggest impediment to them right now is that their two best defensive players are injured and are going to be on the sidelines for a while. You've got Lonzo Ball, who underwent knee surgery, is going to be out for six to eight weeks. Alex Caruso suffering a wrist fracture on that extremely dangerous play uh, against the Bucks when Grayson Allen gave him uh, a little bit of a swipe, a lot of a swipe in midair. Uh, he's going to be on the shelf for six to eight weeks. So that means both of them uh, should be back sometime around mid to late March. Uh, Zach Levine is back though, which is obviously a great sign. He played pretty well in his return last night against OKC. Derek Jones is still out too, right? I think he should be back within the next couple of weeks. I know obviously not the same magnitude of player, but you know, a good defender uh, who who was playing pretty good defense for them. Yeah, no, I mean, they, uh, it, it, it isn't like comparatively a big injury, but like when these things start to pile up and right. your depth gets compromised and specifically, you know, on the defensive side of the ball, when you need all the contributors that you can get. Yeah. Like a, even a seemingly minor absence like that can have a big impact. So, even look, like they felt it when, when Javante Green and Jones were both out at the same time. There were parts of games where you'd be like, well, they could really use at least one of those guys again right now. And, you know, to have one of those guys out while Ball and Caruso are out, yeah, it's uh, extremely right. detrimental to what was a very surprisingly good defensive team to start the season. And yeah, I mean, we haven't even mentioned Pat Williams, who's been out <laughs> since yeah. like the second game of the regular season. He dislocated his wrist. He's not expected back at all this year. Um, Jones has a knee injury, right? And I yeah, think, and he, I don't know it was two weeks ago, ago, literally two weeks ago, I think about to the day, they said it was a two to four week absence. So I think within the next couple of weeks, they should get him back. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, point is like injuries have hit this team pretty hard. And for now, they're kind of treading water. They're still just a half game out of first in the East, which is pretty impressive. Uh, they're sitting here at 29 and 17. But with, you know, Caruso had just come back before he suffered that injury, right? I think this was his second game back after, uh, I can't even remember now what the initial injury that he had, but he had an injury, then he was in health and safety protocols, finally made it back, and in the second game back, he goes out again. So given all the time that he had missed, the time that Lonzo has missed, the time that Derek Jones has missed, they have slid from their perch, you know, which was, they, they were top 10 in defense for basically the entire season until recently. And now they've slid all the way down to 17th. So do you know what their defensive rating is when both of Caruso and ball are off the court this season? I mean, I would guess it's something like 117. It's 115.1, but that is worse than the 30th ranked Pistons right now. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's those two guys have been their anchors, which is not. I mean, usually you think of like a defensive anchor as being, you know, on the interior. They've anchored that defense from the perimeter. And I've talked about the ways in which they've protected uh, Vucevic, all the pre-switching that they're doing, uh, just stopping the ball at the point of attack. And everybody is just a little bit strained right now because of those absences. And obviously this is, you know, their offense is suffering too, because not only is this a team that thrives by generating takeaways, especially, you know, when those two guys are healthy because they do a better job of it than anybody. And that feeds into their transition offense. But then it's also like the guys who are taking their place in the rotation, uh, like Javante Green, I guess, is a good example. And, you know, Troy Brown Jr. Those guys are getting plugged in to replace the lost defense, but they don't bring much offensively. And then there are the other guards who actually, like, Ayo Dasunmu, Huge shout out to him, Dude, who who is, is, is bringing it at both ends of the floor. He's been terrific, and that that's a real silver lining here. I think is like he has taken that opportunity and run with it so far. Dude, he has legitimately been one of the best three and D players in the league this year. Like in terms of three and D role players, few have been better than rookie Io Dasunmu. Uh, I've really liked watching him. So that's yeah. I mean he he is he's been a good stopgap for them, and you know Kobe White has had a nice run too. Uh, although again, like he's bringing it mainly on one side of the ball. So I just, uh, I guess I wonder how far you think the bulls are going to dip in the standings while their two most important defensive players are out because looking at the standings right now, yeah. it's all bunched up where Dude, they're at- a half game out of first, but they're also only two games out of sixth. Dude, look at the and, gap between them and seventh. I think it's only three and a half games. Right. Like, and I'll even say, like, I don't I don't expect them to fall as far as seventh, but it's also not just about staying top six for them, right? I think the Bulls should and probably do have higher ambitions than just making the playoffs. They probably expect to win at least a round. But if they wind up fifth or sixth, that's going to be really, really difficult. So how they fare in this stretch is going to be super important. And they actually have a fairly soft schedule over the next month. Uh, so that should help. And also Vooch, I think, has started to play a lot better, uh, which is nice to see. Uh, even though, like I said, removing Caruso and Ball leaves him a lot more exposed defensively. Yeah, I don't know. What do you what do you see happening over over this next stretch? Like, do you think they do you think they fall as far as sixth? Do you think they fall as far as seventh? Like, how bad is this gonna get? I don't think they fall as far as seventh and and end up in the play-in, but I do think they're going to slide. And I did look at the schedule. I know what you're saying. It is a soft schedule. That will help them. But you're you're so much more susceptible to being upset, to being vulnerable on a night-to-night basis when your defense isn't good. Like, that's just the way it goes. And without Crusoe and Ball, this defense is not good, and it's not going to be good. Like, that's just what it is. So... Like all that considered, I think they're going to slot. Like they're going to lose some games that you go in thinking they should win. The same way that for the first half of the season, they won a lot of games that based on our, you know, preconceived notions of the Bulls coming into the season, I think we would have expected them to lose. I think there's going to be a lot of like the reverse of that happening over the next little while. And, you know, I I think they'll, they'll manage to obviously like tread water enough that they'll still be like a, you know, an admirable, good, competent Eastern Conference playoff team. And if they get healthy, who knows what could happen. But 
they're they're not going to stay in the top two or I think they're still second. Yeah, they're not going to stay top three. Tough. I think they're going to slide and then it's going to really have to depend on them kind of finding their groove again and then staying healthy once those guys get back. Because I just, again, when you look at the defensive numbers with both those guys off the court, when you look at the defensive numbers over the last couple of weeks, it's it's obviously trending in the wrong direction and you cannot play at nearly the uh, you know rate from a, like a wins and losses perspective that they were playing at if you're defending like that. It just can't. It doesn't add up. So yeah. I unfortunately do see them sliding, not really through any fault of their own. One thing I'll say, though, is, look, we've talked about how great Zamar has been this season. Uh, we are both big believers in Zach Levine. Vooch, you know, even when his offense was in the gutter, which it has been for much of the season, I, defensively, he's been solid. Yes, it, it definitely helps that he's got the best perimeter defenders in front of him he's ever had, but mm-hmm. he has also been solid. Like, And th- by the they, way, him just him being on the floor... Yes, offensively. Like, is a boon to their offense, even when he is not scoring it particularly well on an yes. individual level. Like, his spacing and screening, his passing, like, he he is a, a big offensive plus, even when he's not shooting or finishing particularly well. Yes. So, all that said, the other thing, too, is like, look, there's a reason the Bulls' front office went and assembled these three guys together, right? It's why they gave up what they gave up to get Vooch last year, even though it wasn't necessarily going to end up in a playoff run last year. It's why they went and gave DeMar the contract they did that a lot of people didn't agree with, that DeMar has already proven wrong. They got those three guys together for a reason. Those three guys have the pedigree and the talent and and all that to to get the job done. Like You know what I mean? Like they... You are stars in this league for a reason and your team needs you now. Like it's time for them to step up. And I know they all have stepped up in their own way, but it's really time to like carry the water now and maybe get a little uncomfortable, play a type of defense you're not used to playing, dig in a little more on that. Like whatever the case may be, it's all hands on deck right now in the defensive end. And it's those three guys will need to step up as they have been so far this season for the next month or so, whatever it is. And if they do that, maybe they can ride this wave. And, and if they do that, like if, you know, if DeMar continues to play the way he's playing and just steps it up a bit defensively and they stem the tide, that's just even better for him and his obviously not going to win MVP candidacy, but maybe that fifth place vote or whatever. Like there, there, there are reasons why it could go okay for them. You know, they still have their three best players healthy yeah. and those guys need to play like it. But when you get into the nitty gritty, yeah, and you consider the defensive end, I think they're going to slide. And unfortunately, because of how good and deep the East is this year, that month to two month slide will likely be the difference between them being able to make a really great playoff run and them not being able to do that. Mm-hmm. And when I consider that and the stakes at play here, that is when I say March 4th, Friday, Bulls Bucks. I don't want to condone fighting and none of your regulars should go out and get suspended, but I don't know. Alfonso McKinney, Tyler Cook, Malcolm Hill, I don't know, maybe Tony Bradley. Someone's got to punch Grayson Allen square in the mouth. <laughs> I, I'm not going to endorse this position, but uh, you're, do, you're doing the uh, the Matt Barnes. You know, violence is never the answer, but sometimes it is. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I've don't, don't, of... don't Bobby Portis him where, like, you cause potentially life and career uh, threatening facial and nasal injuries. Don't do that. But is there a way to punch him square in the mouth 
where you maybe take a few game suspension. Well, you will take a few game suspension. You don't seriously, seriously hurt them. <laughs> you send a message. Because at this, in terms of like very dirty plays and as close to intentional injuring someone as you can get, I don't remember one like this that also had the ramifications this one's going to have. Like this was complete bullsh- league bullshit. And yes, sure, maybe the timing was just wrong in terms of the way the camera went to him. But like those shots of Grayson Allen smiling and laughing afterwards, the way the Bucks have even treated it afterwards, I get that they got to stand behind their guy, but they could go about it in a bit of a classier way than they have, okay? Pick, yeah, maybe tweet privately a, stand behind your guy. Right, don't tweet a picture of Grayson, what, whatever he was doing, smiling or whatever. Eating like, a donut. Eating a donut the next morning and and put out the press. Like, I do not come to the position lightly where I say on the record on an NBA podcast, someone needs to punch this guy square in the mouth the next time they play. But I do think Grayson's and the Bucks' behavior since then, plus the ramifications and how long Caruso's out, like all this leads me to the point where, yes, unfortunately, I do think the NBA should allow one Bulls player to punch Grayson Allen in the mouth as a settlement of debts right at the beginning of the game, you can do it. Do it as a part of a halftime show, for all I care. But it needs to happen. Then we can go back to playing basketball, and everyone can go back on their merry way. I will say, I didn't think there was any any intent to injure with that play. But I think, at the very best, like the most charitable reading of that play is that it was totally reckless. And I think it's like. Any kind of mid-air play like that, like a chase down block and, you know, an attempt to divert a guy once he's already left his feet, it's it's always so dangerous. And it always scares the shit out of me, even when, like, there is a legitimate play on the ball. Uh, Like, I'm thinking about, you know, even like the Danny Green play. I was thinking, yeah, the exact same thing, which was, again, clean, hard effort play in game six of the NBA Finals. Right, but it's like when you're when a guy is in midair and you're interrupting his flight path and that's changing how he lands, it's just super scary, man. Same thing like a couple of years ago when Karis LeVert dislocated his ankle. It's like yeah. these aren't dirty plays, but they're really dangerous nonetheless. And it's just like you have to exercise that much more care and consideration and caution when a guy is in midair. And obviously that didn't happen on that play. I don't think he set out to injure anybody like it looked like initially he did kind of make a play on the ball, but then obviously the second hand comes in and he's swinging down like just super reckless. And I think, you know, if the NBA really wanted to try to curb this or like set uh, a precedent or example, I'm not saying this would be a bad time or place to do it, but I think they need to like dole out punishment based on action and not necessarily on outcome or consequence, right? Like if, Caruso hadn't gotten injured, I feel like Grayson Allen wouldn't have actually gotten suspended for that. Which play. is a joke. Because if anything, I think he should be suspended longer, regardless of whether, to your point, yeah. And that's what I mean. So it's like plays like that where guys are making dangerous, you know, dangerous fouls, dangerous plays when guys are in midair. It's like, yo, come down hard on that if you don't want to see it happening anymore. If you're only punishing guys when people get hurt, then it's not actually going to deter or dissuade the behavior. And... So my feeling about that is like, yeah, it's a pretty light punishment. And I, I, I honestly would have felt that way, even if no injury had occurred, because it's just so dangerous and there's always the chance that that's going to happen. So, so that's my feeling about that. But as far as the Bulls, I do wonder, like, do you feel that this is going to change their approach to the trade deadline at all? Like, will they be more inclined to try and shore this thing up 
and ride this stretch out without those guys as a result. Because like you mentioned, this stretch, like it could be the difference between them winning a playoff series or not. Like it could really fundamentally change the type of matchup that they see uh, in the first round. And I just wonder if that makes them a little bit more desperate to pull the trigger on a deal. I mean, it might make them more desperate, but I, I have a hard time believing that they go too panic mode on it. I mean, you got to remember, this is a team that, I wouldn't like not all of their eggs are in the basket, but they spent a lot of their eggs to put this team together. And again, to their credit, it looks like rightfully so based on the way the team was performing when healthy. But mm-hmm. I find it hard to believe that they would go like further all in on a team whose ceiling is probably still not quite true championship contention just to ride out, you know, maybe if those guys were done for the year, but I, I still think they have enough faith in this team they put together where they could, they can talk themselves into like, okay, we ride this wave out a bit. Even if we slide, even if we slide all the way down to seven, if we get those guys healthy, we're as good as any team in the East will be fine. And it's not worth spending more of your bullets just to shore up the team for a couple months when I think they've got all of the pieces you need to basically be as good as you can be before being true contenders. And I don't, there's not a move out there that's going to take them into that next stratosphere of a true contender. So I I'd say if look, if the right move comes along, that's very low risk, um, then you do it. But I definitely don't think they should be acting out of desperation or making a panic move that, that spends more of their bullets to really, you know what, when maybe two extra games, well, the the thing to me is that I, I feel like they were going into the deadline anyway, targeting a certain type of player. And I don't really feel like the Lonzo and Caruso injuries are or should change the type of players that they're going to target because they got crazy guard depth, right? Like they can actually sort of ride this out in terms of, at least from an offensive perspective, the the guards that they have on hand. And I still think they're sort of missing that big strong forward like you know the the wing defender who can sort of shuttle back and forth between the three and the four and I I think yeah that's still the type of player that they should target I mean Jeremy Grant is the guy who everyone mentions as you know maybe the ideal Bulls target and I feel like the the hypothetical or like the debate is like whether they should part with Pat Williams in that deal or not and to me like the thing that would scare me off from that is him uh, reportedly only wanting to be traded to a place where like he can have the same sort of offensive role that he has in Detroit, which is like obviously not going to be there for him in Chicago. Uh, but if not for that, I actually would have been like, yeah, hundred percent put Pat, put Pat Williams on the table for Jeremy Grant. Like yeah. uh, this, like you mentioned, this team's built to win now, right? Like DeRozan's mm-hmm. 32, Vooch is 31. Levine's obviously younger, but, and I'm, I'm high on Pat Williams as I know you are as well, but like mm-hmm. I'm not high on Pat Williams as like a franchise cornerstone no, type of player, no. you know? So if, if Pat Williams in three or four years is what Jeremy Grant is right now, then I feel like that's a really good outcome. Yeah. But you could just get Jeremy Grant now when, you know, you have DeMar DeRozan in his prime and Vucevic, you know, at something resembling his prime and Zach Levine in his prime. Like why wouldn't, why wouldn't you yeah. do that? Apart from the fact that apparently he still fancies himself like a primary or secondary offensive option. You know what though? I to be honest, I still make the move because once he's there, like okay, yes, he's he might want the ball more, but he's not like, like he's not gonna sit out. He's not gonna 
maybe he'll be upset at the beginning. Like he's not going to sulk that long. I don't think if he's truly in a good winning environment, like the guy's a professional, you know what I mean? Like once he gets out on the court, there's stakes at hand. This team is playing for something. He hasn't done that in a couple of years. I find it hard to believe that he would, you know, completely abandon his responsibility, say, or, or dog it on the defense end because he's not getting the role he wants. And I'll say this about Jeremy Grant. I actually respect the fact that he's just honest about it because there are a lot of players that will say, it's all about winning. That's all I care about when we know that's actually bullshit to them. I respect the fact that, look, Jeremy Grant, he wanted to get paid and he wants a good, like a big offensive role. That's cool if that's what you want. I just, if he thinks he can have that role and be on a winning team, that's when I'd say, well, I don't respect that because then you're just delusional. Like, I respect the honesty if you also have some self-awareness yeah. and... You can have that role maybe on one or two three teams. You're on one of them right now, but your team is going to be absolute garbage if you are in that role. I'm sorry to say, because you're not a good enough player to have that role on a great team, a contending team, even a solid playoff team. So that's cool if that's what you want, but then you also have to be okay with, you know, losing 55 plus games every year. And if you are a cool man, get your money, you're an NBA player, but just, just know that that's the way it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, if if that is indeed the case and he's off the table for the Bulls for that reason or or just because they don't want to part with Pat Williams, I would just aim lower and honestly, man, bring back Thad. Like, he'd be perfect Yo, for them. yes. Do you um, remember how good Thad Young was last year? Yes, I do. He was my pick for sixth man of the year. He was unbelievable. He'd be perfect um, on this team. Yeah, or like, you know, a Kyle Anderson, even a Kenrich Williams. Like, there are guys out there if they wanted to aim a little bit lower that I think could really, really help them. Yeah, uh, I, honestly, I, do think, I think there's a case to be made that Thad could even help them as much or more than Jeremy Grant, given the kind of I, his versatile defense and the role that he can fill on offense as like a like a short role playmaker. Yep. Like he'd be a really snug fit there. I think Thad would actually be a perfect fit, and I think it would also be like just a good story. You know, he had he had the he played the way he did for them on a team that was kind of going nowhere. It'd be nice if he can come back now and and fill a similar role, but on a team actually very much going somewhere. Yeah. But uh, bottom line, I think they, they do need that player. And especially just like yeah. looking forward and projecting this team fully healthy. That is like the missing piece to that puzzle. And specifically, if you're thinking about, you know, a matchup with a team like Brooklyn, especially a team like Milwaukee, right? You need a, a kind of primary matchup for the Giannis's and Kevin Durant of this world that is that is not Alex Caruso. Like, God bless him. I mean, he can handle those matchups as well as anybody his size conceivably could, but I just don't think that's ideal for the Bulls for like that to be uh, their best option guarding those guys when he's giving yeah. up that much size. And especially because I think he's so good off of the ball. Like you kind of want to unleash him as a rover rather than like forcing him uh, to be the primary on like the number one option on an opposing team every night. So um, if they can acquire that type of guy, get healthy and hold on to a top four seed, then yeah, I'm going to feel pretty decent about their playoff prospects, but uh, yep. that's a lot of ifs. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's close out this episode by moving over to the West quickly. And I just wanted to to talk about the Dallas Mavericks who are 27 and 20 with the fourth ranked defense in the NBA, which obviously if you had told me coming into the season, they were going to have number four defense. I would have told you you were full of shit, but as you know, and on this podcast, I have actually like been pointing to like their really sound defensive process from the start of the season, even when the results weren't quite there. And when they were sitting in the middle of the pack, I didn't expect them to climb this high, but they're, they're fourth behind only the Warriors, Suns, and Cavs. And in the last 15 games, 
their defensive rating is 100.8, which is not only first in the league in that span, it's over four points per 100 possessions better than any other defense. Uh, they are 12-3 and three in that span. Luka is back and starting to look like Luka again. He's so, also defending. Not, yeah, listen, to, not, to not, a point. Not, yeah, he's defending more than I'd say he has in, in the regular season before. In my eyes, he's yeah. he's dialed up the intensity on the defensive end in the playoffs before. I have not seen him defend like this the way he has the last two or three weeks in the regular season before. Yeah, I actually I, I want to shout out Nikias Duncan, who uh, writes at Basketball News. He does incredible work and he wrote about this uh, and I was glad he pointed it out because the Mavs basically have Luca doing the Harden thing where he is just switching everything like on and off ball screens to the point that he's basically playing a one man zone because he's just standing in the same spot. And I think that's a great defensive role for him because similar to Harden, he's not great at getting around screens and doesn't really show much willingness to fight around screens, but he's incredibly strong and you like he can basically switch any assignment. And if you want to post him up, that's not necessarily advantage offense, right? Like he can handle himself in the post against almost anybody because of his strength, um, you know, that's, that's a, that's a good use of him is to just like not have him moving too much, especially in terms of just like the energy that he's exerting at that end of the floor, given the load he's carrying on offense. Like I think using him in the hardened role is the right approach. So they're doing that with him. Um, I think Porzingis has been great. Dude. Uh, his, his rim protection has been very strong and he's also playing up at the level of the screen a lot more frequently and looking way more mobile than he did last year when he was coming off of that knee surgery. And the guys around them. I mean, I've, I've mentioned Finney Smith before and how incredible I think his defense has been this season. Handling. Josh Green. Yeah, Josh Green, man. Then, dude, they they need... You know, we were talking about, like, like, what does this team need, right? Like, they need to hit on a draft pick. They need things on the margins to sort of help them because they don't have a ton of financial flexibility in the next couple of years. They need one of these guys to pop. And his defense is popping right now. This is the, what they picked him. What? 19th a couple of years ago. Yeah. In the 2020 draft. And, and now this part is still valid. A lot of people look at it and said like Desmond Bain was right there. Right. And, yeah. and Desmond Bain can do, can do some things defensively and it can sure. shoot. Desmond Bain was also there for like the 10 exactly. teams that picked and, after them. And that's why I think it's, it, while it's valid, it's also not fair. Cause it's like, well, then you can say that about every team, every team passed on Desmond Bain. But no, dude, Josh Green's good. And and it, uh, this is something I actually mentioned even in that write-up I did where I talked about how it felt like they were wasting a year. Not even just wasting a year, but more so that it felt like a waste that they have a player as transcendent as Doncic going into year four, and yet you're going into that season without real credible like goals of contention. I thought that was a way that, I, you know, I still stand by that. I think the path to getting the player that puts them in that mix, I still, it's so murky for me to like see how they get there but um i even mentioned in that post while kind of ripping them that one silver lining is that i think josh green might actually be able to be the guy that if you remember in past seasons we've talked about them being one of these teams that like they don't have for as good as dorian finney smith is they don't have one of these like big perimeter stoppers big wing stoppers that could guard insert name here of the like the biggest and best perimeter scorers now green actually isn't that big i think he's like six five two hundred and something pounds it's not like he's the same size as a lebron a Kawhi, whatever but based on what i've seen from him so far i think this is the actually the closest thing to one of those guys dallas has had finney smith again great defender i strength wise he just has never seemed capable of, of guarding up like that 
Green looks a lot more capable of it, even though, you know, the the actual measurables might not be there. The eye test and, and the strength test looks good. And so yeah. that's one thing that even when I was down on them, I thought was a silver lining. I think they may have found that guy in the draft in Josh Green. And shouts to Kleba too, who like they, he's obviously primarily a secondary rim protector for them, but they switch with him a lot and sometimes just straight up stick him on like the opposing wing score, right? Like he was a primary on Kawhi Leonard in their past playoff series. Like he, maybe that's not an ideal role for him, but he moves his feet well enough to handle himself in those matchups. And he is just like a consistently solid underrated defender who makes a lot of what they do at that end of the floor work. And I think when we talked about them, whenever we talked about them, I was kind of, we talked a lot about their offense and their poor offensive process. And for the record, their offense still stinks. Um, As before, a lot of that does come down to three point shooting. And I still, even though it's been half a season, kind of expect it to normalize to some extent because like I'm looking up and down and it's just guys shooting well below their Even career Harwood. norms. So Luca's at 29%, Porzingis 29%, Brunson 33%, Tim Hardaway 33%, Reggie Bullock who they signed, you know, this offseason specifically to be like a 3 and D guy for them. He shot like 42%. And the D's been there. Bullock's been year. solid defensively. Yeah, he's shooting 31% from 3. Yeah. Uh the team as a whole is at 32.9%, uh which is 26th in the NBA. So maybe they're not a great shooting team, but they should be better than this. And that will help a lot. Um, And Luca just sort of starting to look like Luca again will help a lot, but they do still have this issue where they don't apply a lot of rim pressure. Um, The secondary creation as good as Brunson has been is still not ideal. And there is a correlation, right? Like I, I mentioned just how above the break oriented their offense is. And that does really help their transition defense, which has been like one of the best transition defenses in the league. So there is a bit of a trade-off there, I suppose, but I'm curious to see what happens with their offense and it can, if it can sort of rise to meet their defense and turn this into like a legitimately scary title contending type of team. Um, because in terms of their defense, like it, I, I don't expect them to finish top five, but I don't think it's a fluke either. Like the underlying numbers are all very strong. They've got, uh, pretty optimal opponent shot profile. Yep. They don't really um, give up a lot of rim or threes. Exactly. Um, and then they're also second in defensive rebounding. They're top 10 in limiting opponent free throws. They're 11th in forcing turnovers. And they allow the sixth fewest points in transition. So that's just like, they're just a really good defense. Um, and I, I don't wonder, think, yeah. Well, Sorry, I just wonder ahead, like, what, is, what does that mean for their playoff prospects? Because we know how much of a problem Luca is in any postseason matchup. So if their defense can hold up, suddenly this looks like a team that can go blow for blow with just about anyone. Yeah, look, when uh, when you have a player as special as Luca uh, on the offensive end and you mesh that with an elite defense, which it is hard to argue that's what this is. Again, yeah, may, they might not be a top four defense when all things are, are, are settled, but I don't think this is smoke and mirrors. You don't hold... Uh, teams below 50% shooting in 23 straight games in the modern NBA with smoke and mirrors. That's legit. Um, Porzingis, if you look at the the players who have um, defended the 50 most shots at the rim, only Giannis, Rudy Gobert, and Jaron Jackson have posted a lower defensive field goal percentage at the rim. Like Porzingis has been awesome. To your point, he's also defending at the level a lot more and, and making it work. He's as mobile as he's looked since the knee injury years ago. 
They have a lot more wing options than I think people realize where you already listed a few of them. So if you have an elite defense plus a player, especially as Luca, like you're much of the way there, they are still missing that second guy on offense, the guy who can take some of the burden off Luca, maybe make them more of a north-south attacking team. Like there's, there is still a, a big missing piece there, but if you looked at their last two playoff series against the Clippers that ultimately both came short, I think you could come away from those series thinking, okay, this team needs to find a way to construct a competent defense. And then they need to find that, you know, secondary option to play with Luca. One of those two things, it looks like has been addressed. I, I just don't think how you can, I don't see how you can post the defensive numbers they posted for as big as a sample size is now and think this is luck. Like this is a very good defensive team, probably an elite one. I keep coming back to how they get that second guy for Luca, but in the meantime, for right now, who the hell wants to go into a best of seven against Luka Doncic when he's got an elite defense behind him? You know, there are teams that will that will beat them. Like I would still take Phoenix over them. Um, I would still take the Warriors over them mm-hmm. in the West. But like, I don't I can know. tell you, the you Grizzlies think? probably aren't relishing the prospect of that matchup right exactly. now. Exactly, the Grizzlies aren't. Uh, I'll tell you. I, I think Utah would be scared of this team, man. Like it's, they're not going to be fun to play against because they'll defend and they have a guy that can single-handedly beat you. So does that mean that you are ready to walk back your take that this was a wasted season in Dallas, that it was all headed down the tubes? No, because again, <laughs> you no, because son I get, of a bitch. <laughs> no, listen, I, you, listen, no, 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 you know, you know for a fact, I am always ready and willing to admit uh when a take went wrong or whatever like you know that i've done it before and i I would do it again the reason i'm not ready to walk it back with the Mavs is because again i my like my original point still stands to me and that is that like the sequence of moves they've made and the the place they've left them in they still are missing something to put luca in a position where he can consistently contend and i given the roster the assets the picks all that i still don't understand how they get that guy and that's what I continue to say was the waste to me, that you have a guy as special and transcendent as Luca going into year four, given how good he's already been in the first three years. And for some reason, you haven't really made in, like progress. And there's not, there's not really a path to make the necessary progress you need to make to get into the true championship. That stuff, I still stand by. But I think I can stand by that and still give them credit for constructing an elite defense and for like basically maxing out the potential of what is there. I will give them credit for that, but I I don't, I don't stand down for my position that it is a damn shame that there is still a very clear cut ceiling on a team with a player, especially as Luka Doncic is. I will say, I think the, the Hardaway extension is the one that still sort of has me scratching my head. And in terms of, just compromising their long-term flexibility when it didn't seem like something they really needed to do. That's right. that's the one that sticks out to me. Apart from that, I feel like all their moves have been pretty defensible. So yeah, we'll, we'll sort of see how uh, the rest of the season plays out. And then uh, what other, I'm, I'm sure there'll be other things that crop up where we're like, Oh, that's what this team needs, or this is how they take the next step. And we'll have a, maybe a clearer picture of it. But for now, I think it's really interesting the way in which they've progressed which is not what i would have expected um them turning into just a really stout defensive team that can't seem to figure it out on offense but like i say i think there's a a chance that offense is going to rise into you know the top half of the league over the coming weeks and if or when that happens like and, and the defense sustains itself like this could very much be a team that we're talking about as a contender 
as we look toward the spring. But uh, for yeah, now, I, I think we can cap it in the same way that you feel uh, the Mavericks have capped their ceiling. <laughs> so um, I don't, sorry, did you have something you wanted to add? No, I was just going to say, look, I, I, neither one of us like understandably so like likes to or wants to give Jason Kidd credit. Um, the one thing I'll say from a basketball perspective is I, I think I even mentioned on the podcast at one point in the off season that I was very sarcastic and laughing at him saying that the first thing this team is going to do is play defense on that end. I will have to eat my words because through half the season, his team has actually proven him right there. And I was texting you about this, but they've got Sean Sweeney there, an assistant coach, mm. defensive coordinator. And this is a guy that he's been uh, at every stop with Jason Kidd. Dwayne Casey also hired him in Detroit. This guy had this reputation years ago as this kind of like up and coming young defensive guru. And it didn't always necessarily translate. Like if you looked at those Bucks teams, obviously you've looked at the Pistons teams with Casey, but it seems like his reputation is kind of being boosted again because if he is the defensive coordinator, as it sounds like he is for kid and, and on this maps team, pretty hard to argue with the results. Yeah. And interesting that like the, the scheme in Milwaukee was completely different than the one that the Mavs are running, right? Like they're not blitzing in the same way that that Bucks team did. They're playing a fairly conservative scheme where, yeah, maybe Porzingis is playing a little bit higher up and like they're switching with Kleba, but it's still like, for the most part, like pretty conservative, shallow drop, some late switching. Like it's nothing earth shattering. It's just something that's pretty well tailored, I think, to the personnel that they have on hand. So yeah, kudos to them for that. And as to the Jason Kidd thing, you know, whatever. Say what you want to say about his coaching. I think he's done a pretty good job this year. He's still a garbage human who shouldn't be coaching in the NBA. And I'll leave it at that before I kick it over to you for a fan shout out. Yeah, I mean, I will not argue that point. You know that. Uh, fan shout out this week. So I do want to mention, there are some people have interacted with me on social the last few weeks and I've told them they're going to get a shout out in the next couple of weeks. I stand by that. So if if I've told you that, that still stands. Someone did kind of jump the line this week. And I, the reason I want to give that special shout out is because uh, Ben McKay reached out to me on Instagram. He's from the Philly area, says he's been a Pound the Rock fan since before the Kawhi quadruple doink that still haunts him. But the reason Ben is skipping the line today, and we don't usually do this, is because he did mention that today is his 21st birthday. So he said, if, if we don't have a shout out for Tuesday's show, he'd appreciate one. We did have one lined up, but the family, the community we have at Pound the Rock here, I'm pretty sure anyone who, you know, is maybe expecting a shout out today will understand that the reason the line was jumped is because it was someone's birthday. So Ben, happy 21st birthday. Uh, thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for your note, actually, at the very end where you said, keep on trashing Daryl Morey. I think we did an appropriate measure of trashing and praising or kind of uh, trying to pick Maury's brain in a way on today's show, but I'm sure there will be plenty of time to trash him if, if things go south in Philly. Uh, but seriously, Ben, thanks for the note. Happy birthday. Thanks for supporting the show. Uh, we do have a few shout outs banked now. So again, thank you to everyone who has reached out on social media. We will get to all of you in the, in the coming uh, episodes and weeks and the usual call out. If you're a fan of Pound the Rock, uh, let us know. Hit us up on social at Joe at Joey W on Twitter at Joseph Cacharo on Twitter. Joe underscore 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 Cash on Instagram, which seems to be where we get most of the uh, feedback. And then Joe on at the score.com via email. Joseph at the score.com via email. Let us know how long you've been listening, what you like about the show, where you're listening from. We'll get you a shout out. 
Wolf, I know you've got some things to add here with respect to shout outs, <laughs> feedback, friends. Well, I'll just say you've been saying at Joey W and it's actually Joey underscore W, by the oh. way, W spelled out phonetically, double Y-O-U. And I wonder if this is why I'm not really getting any of the, the feedback. They all seem to be going to Joe underscore 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 cash. And uh, it's Joey underscore W on Twitter. Let's get some of the shout outs coming my way. And also, thanks, Cash, for giving a friend shout out on last week's episode, because now I have friends bombarding me, telling me they want to get shouted what? out on the pod now. And I didn't think we were doing that, but uh, I guess I'm going to have to show put a couple right of those now, in the bank. No, it's okay. right I'll, save, I'll save it for a more appropriate occasion. All right. But, As uh, I told you via text last night, it's only allowed if they are admitted cash fans. Because when I shouted out Peter, when I shouted out Peter last week, I did say he's become quite the Wolf on fan. Yeah. So that's why my friends aren't getting shouted out. On this <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> listen, uh, we've that's prattled great. on long enough. Uh, yeah. We will talk to y'all again on Friday. Looking forward to that. Uh, for now, let's put a bow on this. Uh, for Joseph right. Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Yeah.